For almost 2,000 years, the Catholic Church has pointed the way toward salvation through Jesus Christ. For each of us, that journey starts in darkness, as if in a cave. We invite you now to come with us as we seek wisdom and truth by way of faith and reason with your guides, Mark Tuttle and Timothy O'Donnell. Join us in the Catholic Cave. Welcome once again to the Catholic Cave. I'm Kent Blanford in the cave with me, Mr. Mark Tuttle, still recuperating in his private cave alongside his uh, faithful companion dog and his new wife, Mr. Timothy O'Donnell. And uh, guys, lately, you know, we we are months, months, months into the pandemic. We're looking at COVID-19 and, you know, we we have those who are saying, you know, science will find an answer. Science will find an answer. And then we have others who are saying, I don't know if we can control this or not. I mean, personally, I look at this and, you know, everybody's saying, we can find a cure. They haven't cured the common cold yet. It's a virus. And so, you know, how much faith can we put in science? And should we, putting, we be putting our faith in science or... You know, do we need to put our faith in God and let God guide the science? Right. And this is where philosophy is called for. And and that's sort of an odd thing. We've got a question about science in front of us, but we want to look towards philosophy. And I think that's probably a good place to start, Tim, because, um, you know, there are some questions about science that science itself is not equipped to answer. And so philosophy has to stand up and say, you know, look, there, there are just some questions that we can't answer scientifically, so we need to use philosophical methods and some some philosophical skills to try to dig a little deeper and get an answer. Yeah, I think we're um, philosophy. Well, but let, let me back up. Philosophy and science, I think, in a, in the contemporary setting, for for a lot of people, seem to be at odds with one another and seem to be in a kind of competition for which discipline. Uh, gives access to the truth of things reliably and uh, and conveys a kind of confidence in it. And um, if you roll back the clock even just a couple of hundred years, you would fi- I think you'd find that um, philosophers and scientists there was there was no formal distinction in in the in the manner that we have now among the among those two disciplines. Like for example, I, I think like a Sir Isaac Newton who's an eminent uh, scientist, right, physicist, uh, also knew that he needed philosophy and used philosophy to, to, as, as he sought to, to explain reality. And he didn't, uh, he didn't allow science to completely engulf all of reality in terms of a methodology or discipline to, to explain everything, but rather uh, was very broad and expansive in terms of the disciplines he would draw upon as you look at things, because science has um, has limitations. It, 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 it has some very powerful tools within it, grants access to reality in very powerful ways, but it definitely has limits. So maybe that, that'll be part of our discussion today, too, here on The Cave. Right, right. And whenever you talk about limits, I always think about definitions, because that's really what defining something is. It's, it's kind of putting limits around the idea or the concept. And I think you're exactly right. Going back to those fundamental definitions of, okay, what is science? What is philosophy? Because way back when, they were one and the same thing. Um, 
you know, when you when you talk about science, traditionally you're talking about an education where there were three sciences. They were theology, law, and natural philosophy. So science itself was not something that the, the way we think of it now. So the word science just means a body of knowledge about something. And so when you're looking at these broad bodies of knowledge, the knowledge of the natural world fell within the science of philosophy. So philosophy was a little bit broader than what we think of as science right now, but science definitely fell within it. And all of the natural sciences, whether they were biology, whether they were, were primitive chemistry, whether they were physics, they were studied by natural philosophers. And it's really not until, you know, the, the probably 17th, 18th century that you have this sort of split between what's understood to be natural science and natural philosophy. I think what we think of today as philosophy and what, what they started talking about as philosophy are the disciplines of metaphysics, the disciplines of logic, of ethics, uh, a few of those things that um, kind of are, are now lumped together as philosophy because they don't fit within a observational, um, experimental um, study of the natural world. So that's now what, what science means, this sort of experimental way to observe and, and way to, to try to get to the laws of the natural world. Yeah, and I, I think that you, you just actually demonstrated, I think, a point that we both want to make here, which is that when you talk about, like, definitions, this is where philosophy can be particularly helpful. The philosopher can be particularly helpful to the scientist because uh, philosophers are we're, we're preoccupied um, and, uh, and at times even obsessed with definitions of what things are, um, where science, uh, take a physicist, is going to, uh, he or she is really going to be preoccupi preoccupied with the pursuit of how things operate, how things are, where the philosopher it will go more into, as you mentioned, the metaphysics, which is like uh, what things are. Yeah, and I think we also have to talk a little bit about as the as there was this sort of split between philosophy and natural science, part of that was because not only the methodology, but a little bit of the purpose of what became natural science sort of shifted. So when, when you go back to the Middle Ages or you go back to the classical period, classical Rome, classical Greece, natural science is based pretty solely on observation. Even when you get into using instruments for observation like Galileo, um, you, you have this idea that we're, we're going to collect a bunch of data, we're, we're, we're going to make a bunch of observations, and we're going to try to figure out what things are based off of those observations. Starting, I would probably argue, with Copernicus. He might be the earliest. Um, you have this shift to where the observations come for the purpose of trying to find fundamental laws. They, they're, they're trying to find those fundamental first universal principles, I would, I would argue, of reason um, that seem to guide the natural world. And so now you've got a, a process where you're setting up defined experiments to be able to test hypotheses as to whether these are universal principles that always hold at all times and all places, or whether there's some other explanation going on to what we're observing. So there, there's a shift 
from just simply observing and collecting observations and collecting data to trying to get to the underlying reasons as to why things are. And so with that, you, you definitely have an interplay of, of philosophy and science where when, when you're talking about first principles and you're talking about trying to discover first principles, that's also where philosophy can be tremendously helpful because philosophy really is sort of the study of first principles and um, the, the logic of where you can get first principles, where they come from, and where you can go from them without making errors. Yeah, I think what, what begins to... Um, it, it, I think what begins to happen, though, in the contemporary setting is you, you certainly, I, I would say, a quintessential example, example of what you're talking about is someone like a Newton or an Einstein that's looking for, you know, powerful explanatory formulae, especially using mathematics as a, as a way to explain um, and, uh, and, and identify um, laws of nature. Um, but, but I think what, what's happened, though, in the last, I don't know, 20 years, let's say, is you, you, it's in, in some ways it's new, and in other ways it's actually quite ancient, which is that you, you, have, you have this impulse to reduce reality to atoms uh, by scientists. So, so let me give you an example. There, there was recently an article in, the, um, in uh, one of the publications that I like to read and I, I recommend called a Catholic World Report, and you can access that online for free. Lots of, lots of great Catholic content in there, uh, updated daily and, and things like that. Well, one of our, our heroes, Mark, has a uh, post in there, has an article in there, um, and it's the eminent uh, Catholic philosopher Edward Fazer, who likes to write on these subjects. And his most recent book is called Aristotle's Revenge. And the reason why I mention this is that... Um, in this uh, actual Catholic World Report that came out, uh, uh, this actually was published within the last week or so, um, Dr. Fazer is doing a book review, and it's, um, it's quite critical, to be honest with you, of, uh, of a book by uh, a physicist named Brian Green called Until the End of Time. And Until the End of Time, and he's a physicist, Brian Green is a physicist, and this book, Until the End of Time, has a subtitle, Mind, matter, and our search for meaning in an evolving universe. And one of the claims that uh, Brian Greene, the physicist, makes in this book is that we're basically a bag of atoms. At, at, at the end of the day, uh, and he's a very, uh, he's a very uh, well-known physicist, a very talented, very smart guy. And, but at the end of the day, he, Brian Greene draws the conclusion that um, it, the human person uh, ultimately is reducible to um, uh, particles, atoms, and the, the job of, the, of a physicist now, uh, the task before physicists now, is to develop a sophisticated enough mathematical model to account for all the atoms in the brain, um, and that somehow that will provide a kind of functioning or explanatory uh, theory that, that explains functioning. So I think that's a, that's a that's a, an example, a, very, a current example of where science and scientists in isolate, working in isolation, reach really profoundly wrong conclusions, and that's and that's kind of where where, where Edward Fazer goes with his with his book review. 
Right, right. And I'm familiar enough with Edward Fazer. I haven't read this particular book review, but Edward Fazer can be rather, uh, how shall we say, scathing, which makes him very entertaining. So, you know, it, it is kind of funny because that, that very polemical style of where you, you take somebody you disagree with and you just utterly barbecue them just for, for the sake right. of, of, of of making sport with a person. It, it, it really is an older older style. If you read medieval, if you read medieval discourse and, uh, you know, med- medieval philosophy it's it's very how shall we say ungentlemanly um and and it, it really is kind of a little bit jarring but edward fazer has that very that same polemical style of you're not just wrong you are very very wrong and i'm going to display that and show that to the whole world and and maybe mock you at the same time yeah he uh i don't, I don't know if he gets into mocking but he does he certainly uh uh offers three uh, devastating critiques of uh, this uh, work of uh, a modern physicist. Um, but again, and, and what the, the, the point I, I will draw from the article for, for our listeners is this, is that atoms in and of themselves are never going to be connected to, especially if, the, uh, especially if uh, mapped out by a kind of mathematization, are never going to explain or connect this to teleology. They're never going to explain how these atoms are are working towards a, a, an overall purpose um, that 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 is uh, that is alignment with our own personal experience of things like consciousness, um, or uh, for Catholics, things like having an immortal soul or free will. I mean, free will goes out the window if we're just a bag of atoms, as a uh, as uh, uh, Dr. Green here points to, then free will is is out the window. Right, and and free will and consciousness; these are all philosophical phenomena. These are all things that we recognize. Um, in, in a lot of ways, through through thinking about them, not necessarily through through observation. We we know about them because of thought. We know about them because of language. But having a observational science where you can kind of map out atoms and be able to trace atoms to be able to account for what ultimately is thoughts and language, um, you're you're kind of looking at the wrong methods to to investigate the wrong things. So we're we're coming up against a break. We're going to take a quick break here on the Catholic K. But when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more. About about the limits of science and how philosophy might be able to help. You're listening to The Catholic Cave on Catholic Radio Indy. The list of items on our online auction continues to grow. Anytime between September 1st and September 9th, visit catholicradioindy.org to register and bid. It's easy and it's fun. Here's some of the items that you can bid on. Religious artwork from Angel's Corner. Four rounds of golf at Plum Creek Golf Club. An overnight stay at the new Hyatt Place Hotel in Fishers. A dental hygiene kit from Wolf Family Dentistry. Admissions for four to Connor Prairie. A snack pack from Johnson's Barbecue. A necklace and a $500 certificate from McGee's Fine Jewelers in Greenwood. A gift card from Puccini's Pizza. An hour lane rental at Pinhead's Bowling Alley. A gift basket of all made in Indiana items from A Taste of Indiana. An overnight stay and golf foursome at Belterra Casino Resort. You can bid as often as you like. Anytime between September 1st and September 9th, you can see all of the items and bid on them at catholicradioindy.org. You'll also be able to bid by phone. 
Welcome back to the Catholic Cave. I'm Mark Tuttle here in studio with Kent Blanford, and we are talking to Timothy O'Donnell from the comfort of his own living room. You lucky dog, you. And today we are talking about science, we're talking about philosophy, and we're talking about the limits of both of them, where they kind of blend, how they're related to each other, how they might be rivals with each other, why there are some questions that they both seem to be equipped to answer, why there seem to be questions that maybe one thinks it's um, able to answer, but maybe it really isn't. And so we were just talking about the question of conscience, cause, or conscious, because consciousness, let's get the word right here. We were just talking about the, the, the question of consciousness and the ability of science to try to address that when really what you're talking about is something that at least when you look at the phenomena, when you, when you look at, at, at what is apparent, you're talking about things that only really appear um, in language and in thought. Um, and there are some physicists who think they might be able to trace back and look at thoughts and language and consciousness through tracing of atoms. But in the end, that seems to, uh, to probably be a, a non-starter just from the get-go because you're ultimately using wrong methodology and wrong attempts to get at really what ultimately is kind of the wrong question to be asked from, from the standpoint of science to begin with. Well, one, one way to maybe get at that a little bit would be to ask ourselves this question. Um, is love real? When I, when I think about the category of personal experience, think about one's own personal experience. If, uh, think about uh, either someone you love or think about being loved by someone um, and what that, uh, what that experience entails. And can that is that experience um, reducible to um, mathematical expression of the activity of brain fizz? And by brain fizz, I mean biochemical activity at the neurological level within our heads between our ears. And I, I would say no, it's it's not reducible to that. That is helpful as it might be to uh, say be able to map the brain. It's not going to explain or account for uh, all of reality. It'll, it, it's, it's in the same way, uh, an analogy I saw in the same way is that uh, as useful as a map, even a very detailed map is uh, to provide details about the topographical terrain of where one might be headed, it never go, the map never in and of itself fully accounts for the experience of actually being in that landscape. Right, especially when you're talking about something that, that goes beyond just the landscape itself, right? So, um, you know, a, a topographical map is never going to give you the experience of visiting... I don't know, St. Peter's in Rome. Um, yeah, because there, there's so much more packed into it than just the physical geography. There's so much more packed into it than, than what can just be expressed through uh, a map. Um, you know, the other, I, I think the other thing, the other analogy with, with consciousness and the, the, the questions of, of what's going on when we're talking about emotions, when we're talking about thoughts, when we're talking about language. Um, Edward Fazer, I, I think... Um, brings this up he says you know science has gotten to the point where we it's kind of like approaching cleaning a room where you can clean a room by sweeping everything under the rug 
and and to a certain extent <laughs> that that's hey, you've been to my house right exactly <laughs> and and that works up to a point yeah, i mean you you can clean a lot of the room by sweeping everything under the rug and that's kind of what natural science has done is they've been able to reduce everything back to chemistry and and um, you know the the firing of neurons and biology but eventually you're going to have to deal with cleaning out from underneath the rug. So you're going to have to, to deal with all everything that's been reduced to that certain point and, and, and try to really, you're going to actually have to, to get rid of the stuff that has been, been swept under the rug. And um, you know, that, that's kind of his analogy for what, what's been going on with natural sciences. They've been trying to investigate things like, I'll just broadly call it phenomenology because that, that's kind of what the, what the philosophical study of these same things are is, uh, is ph- phenomenology and trying to get at that from a, a biological, from a biological perspective. Um, it, once again, it, it seems like you're kind of asking the wrong questions about the wrong things. Well, one, one thing I think that, uh, or one, one place we might be headed here with this conversation, Mark, is, um, to raise the question of whether or not um, there is an immaterial aspect to reality. In other words, the, the, the hard sciences, the, the biology, the chemistry, the physics, are, are um, uh, occupied with, and rightly so in their disciplines, the material stuff, stuff, stuff in the world, stuff in the cosmos, but but there but it it doesn't aim at um, or or answer the or, or it does try to answer the question maybe wrong wrongly so with whether or not there's immaterial realities and it, and an immaterial reality would be something we, another word for that would be spiritual something that's a non-material an example of that might be of course uh, the soul um, but also universal concepts like uni- a universal concept like uh, especially given what's going on right now in many of our cities and communities and across the country, uh, a universal concept like justice um, is, is not reducible to, it's, an, it's a universal concept, it's an, it's an abstract concept, but it's not reducible to the activity of uh, protons, neutrons, and electrons uh, in my brain fizz. Right, and I think you even hit upon a, a little bit more mundane but probably a little bit more important philosophical concept and that's basic teleology you you, you used the big T word earlier Tim um, so teleology is simply the the account of things that are directed so it, it's the account of directedness and when you're talking about human actions then you're just simply talking about the will um, you know whether it is that that I am able to kind of control my own thoughts whether I'm able to control control my own actions and where that whole control process starts. So, you know, you can trace back um, the, the process of vision, the process of seeing something by following the, uh, the, the impulses of, of neurons and the nervous system and the, the exchange of chemicals and how that tra- traces back to the brain. And then you can, you can map out the different firings and relationships between neurons within the brain. But you can never get to the, to the point where you can explain how this is a directed process simply through the, the, the brain chemistry. You, 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 can, you can always get, if you, if you think of vision as similar to somebody watching television, you can always account for what's on the screen 
and and maybe even how the person sees what's on the screen through mechanical and and physical and chemical um, and biological means, but accounting for the the presence and existence of the watcher and what the watcher is able to see and how he's able to control what he sees and what he doesn't see, that seems to be stretching the bounds of natural science to, to a great extent. Right. And I, I think one of the, one of the uh, uh, problems that we face that, that, that uh, sort of fraught with, uh, fraught with danger in this, in this sort of uh, conversation about philosophy and science is that in many, many circles, science is given a privileged uh, position or place as the uh, source of uh, reliable truth of things. And so we're, we're told uh, with, with increasing frequency that we need to listen to the scientists, listen to the science, listen to the science, as if that's one, one thing, um, as if there's you know, complete, uh, a complete monolithic, um, decalogue, if you will, of do's and don'ts that we're all just to follow and just sort of washes away within uh, the, the scientific community itself, you know, de- debate and uh, honest uh, um, disagreement as, as, uh, as to how things really are. Um, so, so that kind of mantra, I think, of listen to the science or listen to the scientists, oh, okay, that's, that's good to, be, to, to have the information, but it's often presented in a way that I think is highly problematic. Right. And I also think another another problem that, that you run into philosophically, and this is related to teleology, but I think it's it's teleology in a, a little bit grander s- scope, is the, the purpose itself of science. And I think we're running up into that, and I, I think that's kind of what, what Kent was getting at at the very beginning of our show, is when you, when you, when you look at science, one of the... I guess if you go back to an older science, let's start from there. Let's go back to Aristotle. And if you want to understand what something is scientifically, um, for Aristotle, you start with trying to look at sort of the the, the, the four causes or four aspects of, of what makes something uh, a thing. You, you've got the material cause, and, and science, natural science, is, is anything if not the, the study of the material cause of something. So the material cause is the stuff that something is made of. And uh, that, that seems to be well within the realm of what natural science looks at. Um, then you have the um, efficient cause. So you have the, the beginning of something. Where, where, where its origin comes from, what, what action sort of started it all off. Once again, that definitely seems to be well within the realm of, of natural science. But then you have two other causes that are related to those. You have the formal cause, and that's kind of the, the limits of something, the boundaries of something, what gives it its definition, what gives it its shape, um, what gives it its form. That's the formal cause. And then finally, you have what's called the final cause, the, the teleo- teleological cause, what its purpose is. So if we take those four aspects of something and we, we say, okay, so what is natural science? And we use those to try to define natural science. We run into a really big, interesting question around that last one. What is the purpose of natural science? And in the modern world, we run into to a, um, we run into an attitude and, and almost an assumption that the purpose of science is to be able to conquer and control nature. And, um, you know, I think that gives that that should give us some philosophical pause a little bit when we're talking about what science is and what the boundaries of science are as to whether that is 
accurate, whether that really is truly the purpose of what science is and whether that defines science and also, um, you know, what some of the dangers are of, of trying to look at nature in that way as something that can be kind of controlled and subdued and put to our purposes as human beings. And, and I think in, uh, I think I remember, uh, I do remember it was, uh, Bishop Barron talking one time in one of his, uh, uh, YouTube post that was helpful um, in that, uh, as, I, as I understand what he, the point he was making, is that uh, in our current setting, the, the uh, primacy of science and the scientific method is a hyper accent on the efficient cause of things, uh, because that's what's related to uh, technology. And, of course, we have, uh, as Americans, and, and, of course, others around the globe, but Americans especially, we we love our technology. We're, we're completely immersed in it. And, in fact, now with the current setting, I, I saw an article recently, too, I think it was even yesterday in the Catholic thing, um, today or yesterday. It was uh, that uh, because, of the, because of COVID-19 and the need to, you know, engage in learning uh, education remotely, the investments in technology are just have, like, more than doubled year over year from something like, I want to say something like 20, we were spending $25 billion a year as a country on te- technology for education. It's, it's north of $50 billion now is, of course, you need technology to try to, you know, remote into these different learning environments. So we love our, we love our technology. We use a lot of technology. We invest in it. But again, going back to where we started this conversation, it, it doesn't, uh, science has certain limits. And that's probably where we need to spend a little more time. And we'll spend that time right after we take this break. You're listening to The Catholic Cave on Catholic Radio Indy. Alexa, what's the weather forecast for today? Alexa, what time is the Colts game today? Alexa, remind me to pick up the dry cleaning tomorrow. Has Alexa become a part of your daily routine? Then make sure that routine includes Alexa Play Catholic Radio Indy. Catholic Radio Indy. Quick, easy access to Catholic programming 24-7. Just say, Alexa, play Catholic Radio Indy. Catholic Radio Indy. Have you ever thought about joining the Catholic Church? Have you just wanted to explore the Catholic faith? All you need to do is call your local Catholic Church for more information. We are always happy to help you in your journey to discover and learn more about the Catholic faith. We have classes that are almost year-round, and the classes and information sessions do not involve making a commitment, and there is no pressure to join. Please call your local Catholic parish for more information today and start the journey of one day possibly becoming Catholic as well. God bless. You can hear the Holy Mass every day at 8 a.m. right here on Catholic Radio Indy. Welcome back once again to the Catholic Cave. I'm Mark Tuttle here in studio with Kent Blanford talking with Timothy O'Donnell, and we are talking about science and philosophy. And so far, we've been making a lot of observations. We've been talking about, you know, where, where the, the, the boundaries are between philosophy and science. Um, we, we, we've been talking about where, you know, science might be going a little bit beyond itself. We've been trying to make some observations about where philosophy is necessary. Um, but so far, we've been kind of, we, we, we've been just making bits and pieces and, and, and cherry picking, I think, um, certain observations we've made about the relationship between science and philosophy. So let's, let's try to bring some of these observations uh, 
together, Tim, if we can, and, and come up with uh, a little bit more of a, a whole account so that there's a little bit more method to our madness here. So when, when we're talking about the relationship between science and philosophy, what really is that relationship? What, what is the proper relationship between what we're talking about as philosophy, which is ultimately what I would call the study of those sort of immaterial aspects of reality that natural observation can't get to. So basically it's the study of all of the things that we've swept under the rug as, as modern people. Um, what is the relationship between that and natural science at this point? Yeah, I, I would I would start with philosophy. Of course, um, we know from the its Greek root words means love of wisdom, and so I think philosophy. Um, the best definition I heard um, is this: it, it's philosophy is the most perfect knowledge of the most important things in their proper order, and a permanent disposition to live in accord with those truths. So philosophy is after the most fundamental truth, knowledge of the most fundamental truths, um, and that those truths then inform and guide our lives. Um, and for Catholics, that's towards beatitude, it's towards heaven. And so where science is generally, but not but not not completely, and I'll, and I'll explain my little caveat there. Um, with the with empirical methodology, in other words, observable, repeatable experiments based on hypotheses to confirm or deny those hypotheses that ultimately uh, or ideally result in in better understanding of the of the natural world. Um, they do. They science has um, wandered um, towards more speculative, and I would say even philosophical musings, um, because when you look at things like quantum mechanics, those things are not really observable. Um, they're too, it's too small. And so, um, it, so, so there, is a, there is this interplay for philosophers and scientists, you know, the, when you think again, the hard sciences, for, them to, for us to collaborate together, because philosophers, again, do a remarkably good job, a good philosopher will do a remarkably good job, he or she, um, bringing up the clarifying questions. So science preoccupied with things like, say, cause and effect, the philosopher would be, maybe might go even take a step uh, prior to, to cause and effect and say, why, what, what is causation itself? Well, let me ask you a question about all that, because by your definition, and I don't want to repeat it, but because A, it was, it was a wonderful definition. As definitions go, that was, that was one of the, the better ones I've heard for, for the definition of, uh, of philosophy. But um, by your definition, it seems that natural science and the exploration of the natural world is subsumed under philosophy. In other words, it's all philosophy. Science is, is just another method of trying to answer those fundamental questions about the, the fundamental things in the right order. You know, science just add, just gives us some, some better tools to be able to ask and answer those same questions. So our philosophy and natural science all one, which is kind of what the ancient world believed, or is there really a distinction between what philosophy is studying and what natural science is studying? Well, I, I'm, I'm kind of a more of a traditional uh, kind, of, kind of guy, Mark. So I would say it's all one. I, I hold to the ancient uh, 
the, the ancient uh, categories of philosophy, just, just like in Aristotle, as we brought up earlier, you know, certainly made, uh, made many, many significant uh, contributions, not just to what we would see today as um, the, the sphere of philosophy, um, but, but also to natural science as well, and he made no such distinction. Similar to, I would say this, I mean, you go back to like a uh, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, um, didn't see himself as um, part philosopher and part theologian. He kind of saw it all as one, um, one pursuit with different tools in the toolbox, right? It's one toolbox with different tools in it, theological tools and philosophers. So faith and reason working together, and I think that's when um, we're at our best is when science and philosophy are cooperating towards one end. But I, I would say science, which is a body of knowledge, Ought to be ought to be restored to at least in our thinking as a branch of philosophy. The the problem arises though in that the body of knowledge that is accessible and forget breaking new ground in these disciplines. There's just um, there's a there's a specialization um, that occurs through um, through academic pursuits such that one simply in one's own in one lifetime could do nothing but, you know, you spend your whole time simply studying, say, chemistry. And because uh, there's so much there to know, and that's without even breaking new ground. And so um, that, that I think that because of the depth of the knowledge that's available to us and the desire to speculate and break new ground in these fields, it's, it's nearly impossible for most of us within the span of a lifetime to broaden out with great, great depth all these different disciplines. Right. And and that specialization happened in a way that the specialties became somewhat somewhat defined not only by the subject matter of what they're looking at, but also the, the methodology and instruments that they're using to study it. So if you're studying chemistry, you're using a different set of tools, you're using a different set of observational techniques to study chemistry than you would to study physics. Um, and then especially as you, you start to get into, you know, more the molecular level of things or, or even, you know, the, the, the atomic level of things, you know, physics and chemistry, as far as the methodology that they use, start to break off even, even further from each other. Um, and so then if you've got that, that sort of specialization that's, that's going on, not only on sort of subject matter of, of the natural world that, that you're looking at, but also methodology, then it's only natural to think that, well, okay, if chemistry is defined by the subject that we're studying and the method we're using, and physics is defined by the subject that we're studying and the method that we're using, philosophy should be defined by the subject matter that we're studying and the method that we're using. And so philosophy becomes just another one of the sciences, plural, um, defined by what it's studying and how it's studying it, rather than uh, sort of the, the, the grand scheme and, and the attempt to account for the whole, all of wisdom, everything all at once, and to, to come up with a, a kind of map of, of the entire realm of, of reality. Yeah, I, I wonder, I wonder, and I, I don't have a, I, I've not really given this enough thought yet, but I wonder, though, that may, maybe one area where philosophy um, has more of a universal, say, application is that when, in philosophy, when you raise certain questions uh, using certain universal concepts, like 
uh, permanence and change. When you when you explore that uh, those terms um, and how they're related to each other, permanence and change, you begin to have um, you begin to have a kind of knowledge and understanding that transcends uh, across all kinds of fields of all all, all kinds of a. Uh, fields of inquiry, all sorts of elements of reality, in a way that something very particular, say, um, microbiology, as, as uh, important a field as that is, doesn't have the same, uh, does, doesn't have the same sort of universality um, or ability to contribute to the synthesis across these multiple disciplines or categories. Right. And, and you know, philosophy then adds sort of, I guess, that, that metaphysical realm, whether you want to look at metaphysics as the more traditional study of, of like, St. Thomas or Aristotle, looking at metaphysics from that perspective, or whether you want to look at what I would argue is a, a more modern understanding of, of metaphysics when you're looking at the interplay of subjectivity and objectivity, and you're, lo- you're looking at sort of the, the interplay of how the mind relates to the, the, the I guess, objective world. Um, that that makes up more modern metaphysics. It's still metaphysics, just under a different name, is kind of my 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 view on it. Um, but philosophy adds that metaphysical <laughs> level. That these are questions that are going to cut across disciplines. These are these are questions that are going to come up, <clears throat> whether you're studying chemistry or whether you're studying physics. Um, that that sort of metaphysical side of things is really where philosophy kind of. I won't say it comes over the top, but where it's important to be able to at least have an interplay with the rest of the scientific disciplines. Yeah, and I, and I think the, the Catholic intellectual tradition has preserved natural law, natural law theory. Um, and what that means is going back to something we talked about earlier, which is teleology, that things, things are built with uh, purposes. And uh, again, kind of the, the hard sciences, strictly speaking, can again uh, are marvelous at uh, at revealing how things operate, um, and therefore and and create great predictive power um, on how things will turn out when you run certain uh, kind of again experiments, let's say. But it doesn't tell us the purpose of things. In other words, I've heard this before: like physics can uh, physics uh, the the, the uh, physics can de- develop uh, nuclear a nuclear bomb. But but it can't tell us you know how or when or if it should be used. Right. Um, that's a that's a different that's a di- that's a different kind of category than physics. Physics will tell us how to split an atom and and create a, a powerful a very powerful weapon, but it won't tell us. It won't tell us whether or not we should use it. Right. What condition? And and that brings up a whole nother level of interplay between philosophy and science because the realm of ethics. Um, you know, traditionally, if you go back to the, the very classical understanding of, of these different sciences, you've got theology, law, and, and natural philosophy. You know, ethics is in the, the whole other science of law, even going back to, to the, the, the classical world. And so, you know, that's, a, that's almost an ancient argument as to what the interplay between ethics and science really is or ought to be. Um, I think I think Kent was uh, motioning that we're we're coming up for for time for a break. But when we come back, let's let's take up that question of of sort of where the interplay between ethics 
and natural philosophy ought to be. And we'll be back with more of the Catholic Cave right after this. Whoever thought it would get this big? The Catholic Radio online auction now has over 100 items. Between September 1st and the 9th, visit catholicradioindy.org to bid on these items. A private fashion party for up to 10 people from the Secret Ingredient Women's Boutique. A basket of novelty items from Bright Ideas in Broad Ripple. A gift card for $75 from Binkley's Kitchen and Bar. Tubing down the White River from Anderson to Broad Ripple. Religious items from Creed Brothers. A day's rental of a double-decker houseboat from Dale Hollow Marina. Box seats for an Indianapolis Indians game next spring. Four cruises on the Madam Carroll, Indiana's largest boat. Stadium blankets with the Catholic Radio logo. A hundred-year-old antique German beer stein. Baskets of candy from the Albanese Candy Company in Merrillville. Hand-sewn baby quilts and wall hangings. We've got all this and more that you can bid on September 1st through the 9th at catholicradioindy.org. Welcome back to the Catholic Cave. I'm Timothy O'Donnell and still in the cave remotely um, with Mark Tuttle and Ken Blanford and... Uh, today in the Catholic Cave, we've been talking about philosophy and science and their uh, sort of different disciplines, their interplay, their compatibilities, their rivalry um, for uh, primacy of place in terms of revealing the truths of uh, the, the cosmos to us. And Mark, uh, in this last segment, well, maybe let's—I uh, thought maybe we'd, let, let's return a little bit to. Um, something that I think is really important, something that distinguishes philosophy from science, and that is um, ethics or morality, um, which seems to be the, or ought to be the exclusive um, domain of, say, philosophy and then uh, theology. But yet there, are, have been, there, there have been efforts on the part of uh, scientists to, especially evolutionary scientists, um, to try to explain why it seems we have, each person seems to have an innate sense of, say, fairness, or right and wrong, or good and evil. What are your thoughts? Well, I find it interesting, you know, we, I talked about this a little bit in the last segment, but really from the beginning of philosophy, from Aristotle, you have a, a split between law and ethics and the study of right and wrong and the, and the study of beliefs about what is right and wrong and right action and the study of natural philosophy, the study of the natural world, the study of how things work, what they are, um, even what, what their purpose is, um, you know, that all fits within the, the study of natural philosophy and, and what we would now call science and law and the study of ethics has always been separate from that. Um, but in, in, there, there was a development where so much of the law got based upon the idea of natural law. In other words, the right and wrong of things is is built into it. So, um, you know, what makes a good dog, there, you know, kind of what makes a good dog sort of then conditions how a dog ought to act, right? And the same thing goes for for human. What is a, a human nature, and what a person is then dictates how we should act. So when you, when you pull that natural law idea into ethics, you're pulling in the, the study of nature 
into ethics is sort of a, a set of first principles to a good extent. So you're basing the study of law and ethics off of first principles that you're coming from science. Well, now then when you start to get into evolution, you start to get into more biological theory and you're having these first principles of ethics based upon um, first principles that you're pulling, pulling in from biology, that continues with evolution. And so as we're understanding more and more about who mankind is based on a, a study of evolution, now we're bringing in first principles from biology as the beginnings of trying to understand right and wrong and law and, and having a, that conditioned off of, off of biology. And then you have a problem where the, the ethics of, of right and wrong start to become politicized. Um, which I think is sort of why that was always in the sphere of law anyway. And so now you, you've got this effort to try to make certain behaviors and certain attitudes um, justified because they, they seem to stem from biology. And um, not, not only is biology providing that first principle, but now biology is providing that sort of final cause, that, that, that sort of reason for things. Um, and, and so you, you have this sort of bootstrap of ethics into biology that now biologists are, are kind of running wild with. That, that's my, my very, um, I, I would almost say, sort of uneducated sort of attempt at, at getting to it. Yeah, and I, I think, too, it calls to mind for me something we talked about earlier around um, whether or not free will exists, whether or not we can actually reflect on um, uh, past actions and do any type of moral assessment on them whether we can deliberate about the rightness or wrongness of action. I mean, uh, these are things, these are, uh, we, we have firsthand experience with that, that I don't think is, again, reducible to simply uh, biological processes or brain fizz, I call it, which is a term I probably from a, a, a pastor on YouTube. He calls it brain fizz. You know, this biochemical stuff just kind of going on between our ears. I think there's much more to it, and as Catholics, there's much more to um, the human person than just reducing ourselves to um, mater simply material um, organisms, but there's a there's a spiritual immaterial dimension to it. I mean, here, here's a here's kind of a question that that I don't think that I'll raise, and I don't think I don't think science, you know science has a, a good answer to it. Like so, for example, does it matter whether we can easily save a drowning child? but casually choose not to do it? I mean, which, which branch of science can answer that question? Right, well, right. Well, there I isn't one. Right, and, and science, would, science would claim, yeah, it's not, you know, the, that really is the study of ethics and law and, and not, you know, something that, that should fall within in science. Um, but where, where science does fall is, and I think where, where science does come into play and would claim to have a role is that science it feels like it's able to assign a value to um to objects and including a value to human life so science is able to then kind of give a, a, a primitive evaluation that is that is objective in other words it's not not informed by law and ethics and people's beliefs and opinions about things but is based on observation and so now science is able to step in and say well we have to we, we can value things um, based on on scientific observation and I think that's where you wind up with this crossover that, that plays into certain ethical 
you know, ethical puzzles like, is it ever acceptable to, to pass by a, 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 a baby that the, that's life is threatened? Um, you know, then, then you've got certain values that, that start to throw in and those are coming more and more from science and from biology. So, um, when you, when you start to look at the idea of environmental science, for instance, what, what you've got there is you've got certain valuations of the environment and, and a, uh, a sort of map of what is critical to the health of the planet, what's critical to the health of mankind. All of these are, are valuations that are based off of observations. And environmental science then wants to place those as either first principles or last principles or, or you know, almost the whole discussion of ethics and, and law and morality around the environment. Yeah, I would say that that science trying to convey value, especially value on, say, persons, is quite precarious. Um, I've heard arguments that, um, you know, from a, a, say, a purely secular point of view, that human life is valuable because of reproduction, that we need to reproduce our series, which, uh, our, our species, which, which, again, I think is a bit fallacious or disingenuous given our use of, say, contraception and abortion and li- limiting, uh, limiting our reproduction. And then I also would say the, the environmental argument is also problematic from a secular humanist point of view, a quote-unquote scientific point of view, because uh, much of today's uh, green movement identifies human beings as uh, the, the, a, a kind of blight on the natural world and the fewer of us on the world polluting it and using and, and using its resources, the better. So, so those would be kind of two two ways in which one would say, "Let the child drown." Right, right, and and I think you run into other you run into other value problems when when you you're taking when when you're taking estimations of value just simply off of observations. You know, the whole idea of eugenics comes into play. Um, you know, when when you're trying to take a scientific account of what makes a good human being, and then you're trying to use biology to bring about good human beings, you run into all sorts of ethical problems. Yeah, I mean, eugenics is, uh, you know, that, that uh, again, sort of a scientific methodology that uh, takes account of uh, kind of breeding and treating human beings as stock that uh, from which you breed certain um, desirable traits and characteristics through that methodology and maximize, trying to maximize the desirable traits and qualities and, and minimize or eliminate. I mean, this is, that, that's the foundation of uh, Planned Parenthood um, and, and Margaret Sanger. So, um, and that, uh, quote-unquote, is a very scientific way. So, so anyway, I don't want to be misunderstood. I mean, I'm a fan of science, but I'm also a fan on understanding what uh, science can and cannot do. And, uh, and with that, I'll leave it there. Right. And I, I think we need to add to that that you really need not only philosophy, but you need a theological sense. You need a, a touchstone with the divine to be able to not only kind of figure out where the limits of all of these things lie, but also figure out the direction of where all of this ought to be headed. Okay, let's, uh, let's plug real quick Fetus et Ratio by St. John Paul the Great, a marvelous encyclical on faith and reason. That's your reading assignment for this week. That's all the time we have for the Catholic Cave. For Mark Tuttle, for Timothy O'Donnell, I'm Kent Blanford. Until next time, be holy. The Catholic Cave is a production of Catholic Radio Indy. 
Replays of this program are available in podcast form at catholicradioindy.org. Comments about this program can be addressed to Kent at catholicradioindy.org or by calling 317-870-8400. Did you miss something in this show or just want to hear it again? Podcasts of this and all our other great local programs are available 24-7 at catholicradioindy.org.